you'd like to open up your Bibles, we are in Psalm 77. Come to Psalm 77. This has long been one of my favorite psalms. Uh, years ago, I ran across this psalm and, and it hit me right where I was. I mean, just just nailed me. It's a very personal psalm written from a very personal place. Written by Asaph, who speaks with the voice of the common man. You know, poets and songwriters in any society have this wonderful ability to articulate what many of us have in our hearts. They have a way of saying it, of putting words together that captures what many of us feel and we resonate with these things. And Asaph has that gift. As a poet, songwriter, prophet, he has the gift to put to words what what we're feeling. And I've been so impressed with, with the Psalms of Asaph. We've moved out of the Psalms of David, which are, which are raw and, and emotional and, and very sensitive as well. But we come into the Psalms of Asaph and, and suddenly I feel like it's even more the voice of the common man. He writes these Psalms of the sanctuary and Asaph will speak to and has spoken to the heart of the many. Now the downside of such deeply felt self-expression that often we see in our poets and and musicians is that as low as a person can go, they can also go so high and vice versa. As high as a person can rise up, they can go that low in the opposite direction. And it can easily lead to eye trouble. Eye trouble. As Kyle and Delich wrote, this is a very ego-centered psalm. It is full of I, I, I. It gives us the prayer of an ordinary person, a sinful person who is in very great trouble. And he places the blame for his situation firmly in God's lap. Now I know none of you have ever done that. But the psalmist does. Asaph does. They write, when he thinks of God, he moans. When he meditates, his spirit faints. He cannot sleep and he even blames God for that. He lays it all there on the Lord. Now it's true, the psalm begins this way. But who hasn't felt that at some level? Who hasn't in their struggle or in a time of sorrow or a time of of frustration, who hasn't laid it at God's feet and said, Why, Lord, what are you doing here? I don't understand. Help me with this. Who hasn't found themselves, if not blaming God, at least inferring that perhaps God could do a little better with your current situation? Well, this psalm is wonderful, Psalm 77, because Asaph is just like you and me. He's a human being capable of rising up on wings of worship and crashing down into depths of despair. He covers both angles. But the key to rising out of the despair, to to lifting out of depression, the key to all of that, gang, it's, it's in how we view God. It's how you look at the Lord. And I believe we'll see this as we go on. We'll divide the psalm into two parts. Psalm 77. The first part is verses 1 through 9. And then we'll go to verses 11 through 20. And verse 10 is a turning point in the psalm. Kind of a hinge. And we'll see that in a moment. So part 1, verses 1 through 9. The crisis of unbelief. The crisis of unbelief. Verse 1. My voice rises to God. I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. 
Or in other words, he just held it out there all night. He wouldn't stop crying out, holding out his hand. He says, my soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. When I sigh, or literally meditate, when I meditate, then my spirit grows faint. And we come to a selah, a pause. And that's why some don't like to meditate on God. What Asaph says here is why some don't want to remember God or think about God. Fear of no response. If I pray, what if He doesn't answer? If I think about God, what if I get nothing? So if I just ignore or try to go on about my business, then perhaps I don't have to face that uncertain possibility that either there is no God or He doesn't want to answer me. And I'm talking about the masses in general, people, who will avoid even thinking about God because what if we're wrong? What if He's not really there? Or worse yet, what if He's there but He just doesn't want to answer me? And Asa says, I'm in that place. You know, when I remember God, I'm disturbed. And when I meditate, my spirit grows faint. You know, it's funny to me that one of the greatest testimonies to God's existence is the way both affirmed believers and avowed atheists pray. Atheists pray? Absolutely. Everybody prays. It's in the way, and you can define it in different ways, but have you noticed the tendency among all people to speak to someone else, even when they're alone? Believer or not, as though someone else were listening, some call it speaking into the void. You know, others would refer to it as, I'm just talking to myself. Believer would say, I'm talking to God. There is a natural tendency, I believe hardwired into the heart of man, to talk to God. To speak out of ourselves to the one we know is out there. Whether we want to accept Him as Lord, whether we want to follow Him or not, whether we're in rebellion or, or faithfulness, either way there's that tendency, there's that hunger, there's that desire to, to speak out to Him. And you've done it. Even in times when you're not intentionally praying. Oh man, I really, you know, what are we going to do with this? What do you mean we? It's just you. What are you, nuts? Who are you talking to? We all have this desire to speak out. Admit it or not. Because I am convinced that we all know in our heart of hearts there is a personal, intentional, and desirable God. We know this. Humanity knows this. Paul put it this way. He said in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we usually jump from that verse to the homosexual verse. But there's a verse in between. Verse 19, listen to what Paul says. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident. Even before Paul jumps out to nature and says that which is evident about God can be seen in the things that He has made, he says prior to that, he says that which is evident or known about God is evident within them. What do you mean, Paul? You know. You already know there's a God. Now, I know I'm talking primarily to believers here tonight. I I get that. But the atheist who says, no, there's no God, he knows. She knows. It is evident within. You may try to deny it or ignore it or, or, or pass it off as, as something you, you, know, you just don't want to deal with. But we know that we know deep in our heart of hearts. There's a God. Paul saw it. 
In all his missionary journeys into Gentile territory, Paul saw it again and again. And he addressed it when he went to Athens. You recall Acts 17, he went into Athens, Greece there, and he wrote, While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, talking to the Athenians, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Which is funny, they just wanted to make sure they had their bases covered. You know. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he made from one man, down in verse 26 of Acts 17, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that, listen, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. He set us here that we might seek after Him. And He put within the heart of every man, of every woman, a hunger, a desire to know God and to talk to God. And sometimes it just slips in the heart of the unbeliever. Oh, you've got to get me out of this one. Who? God. The heart is hardwired to know Him. And when we fall on hard times especially, that's when the tendency is to cry out to a third party. When we're really struggling, we, we want to seek someone or something greater than ourselves to seek the Lord. Now, that's a good thing. That's the thing that the Lord will use. I believe in the conviction of a non-believer, oftentimes the Lord will allow hard times to come that they might cry out for help, cry out for someone beyond themselves. But even among believers, you know, it's not a bad thing that we cry out to God in times of trouble. We play that little game. I don't know if you do this. I've done this. Play a little game with yourself that, well, I haven't talked to God last week when things were good, and this week when things were bad, now I'm going to call out to Him. No, I better. I don't want to be a fair-weather Christian. I don't want to be a fair-weather friend of the Lord. I mean, if I only come looking for God in troubled times, what kind of a person am I? And there's an answer to that question. <laughs> Sinful. Rebellious. Faithless. That's what kind of a person I am. But it doesn't mean God is not faithful. And He uses the day of trouble to open our ears and to draw us near. And He's listening. Whether we're in good times or bad times, you cry out to the Father and He is listening. And He's waiting. But what happens when we seek God in trouble and He remains silent? What about that? When I cry out and I get nothing in return, how do I deal with that? Asaph goes on in verse 4. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night, or what he's saying there, the way I used to sing. I remember when I was in Sunday school as a kid, and I used to sing all the time, and I loved it. Or I remember those days when I was younger, my worship was was constant, and I, I remember that. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders, he says. He's in the midst of the crisis of unbelief. Crisis of unbelief. You held my eyelids open. It means he's wide awake. He has not fallen asleep, but he has nothing he can say because he said it all. He's just lying there. I don't know what to do. I'm not getting anything from above. And I'm trying to remember my song in the night. I'm meditating. I'm, I'm pondering. He's in this faith crisis. And in deep depression, Asaph exposes this crisis for what it is. He asks six brutally honest questions. Listen to these. Question number one. Will the Lord reject forever? 
Question number two. Will He never be favorable again? Question number three. Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Number four. Has His promise come to an end forever? Number five. Has God forgotten to be gracious? And finally, number six. Or has He in anger withdrawn His compassion? And we come to a pause, a Selah. He throws these questions out there. And He waits for an answer. And guess what? He doesn't get one. The Lord does not respond. Nothing. Silence. All these six questions. I find that interesting because six is the number of a man. Six is the number of uh, just shy of completion. Incompletion. That's why Antichrist is labeled 666 because he never quite gets there. Never quite good enough. Never quite complete. And that's humanity in and of ourselves. We, We don't arrive. We're at six, but we never quite get to seven, the number of completion. And his questions, his six questions stop just shy of an answer. But then there's a pause. God doesn't answer. But in this pause, in this interlude, this moment to consider what he has already sung, what he is writing, listen, I can't prove this, but I think in this moment, Asaph arrives at the sanctuary. Right here, he arrives at the sanctuary. Perhaps... Asaph, after a long, dark night of rolling over back and forth in his bed, of of praying until he had no more words, of lifting up his hand until it it did him no good, uh, of eyes wide open and just waiting, perhaps he rolled out of bed in the morning and ate his Wheaties and then headed for his work at the temple or the tabernacle. I can see this happening. He's had the long, dark night. What St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And he's up in the morning, and he's depressed, but he's headed to work. And it's as if he arrives at the sanctuary right here at this point. Now, whether that happened literally, and I'm just making that up because I have nothing to back it up with, but whether that happened literally or spiritually, I believe he did arrive at a place of sanctuary. Why? Because faith begins to emerge. Because faith prevails. And there is faith. Faith is found in the sanctuary. Jesus is our sanctuary. Now we are individually, we're sanctuaries, and our body is a sanctuary as well, the body of Christ. But Jesus Himself is our sanctuary. Remember we talked about last week. He intends in the New Jerusalem to be the temple. There is no temple. He is the temple. Jesus is the sanctuary. And when we come into the presence of Jesus, faith rises up, as happens with Asaph. And he says, watch this in verse 10, the hinge verse. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. What? It's not that the right hand of the Most High has changed. It's my grief that thinks He has changed. My grief is the problem. And suddenly, Asaph removes the blame that he's laying in the lap of God and he places it squarely on the lament of man. The problem's not God. The problem's me. The problem is my own grief, my sorrow. I'm looking at my problems through the veil of depression. And it's a dark veil and I'm having trouble seeing through it. The only change in the right hand of the Most High's, in the hand of the Most High, is Asaph would say, my perception. I'm perceiving this all wrong. I'm looking through eyes of grief. 
And as Asaph arrives at the sanctuary in this place of faith, his crisis of unbelief gives way to something of far greater weight. Part two, a confidence in the unchangeable God. And this is awesome. Crisis of unbelief now becomes a confidence in the unchangeable God. Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. You might circle holy. The word there is literally sanctuary. Your way is sanctuary. Or your way is in the sanctuary. Your way is in the holy place. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And he pauses again. What is Asaph doing here? He's looking back. And it's a healthy looking back. He's recalling history. You see, if if God truly is unchangeable, then we can have confidence that what we see in His past faithfulness will be played out in our present circumstance and even in our future promises. His past faithfulness, if He's unchangeable, if God never changes, then His faithfulness of the past will be played out right here in my present and again in the future. Because He's unchanging. My circumstances change. I change all that, but not God. He is unchangeable. And so Asaph looks back. Now, we are not unchangeable. We change our minds as often as we change our clothes. As often as we have to change diapers in my house, we change our minds. We are up, we're down, we're all around, we're changing opinions, we're changing personas, we're changing appearances. And God is unchanging. Now you've got to let that sink in. He is unchanging, He is unchangeable. He said to Moses there at the burning bush, Exodus 3.14, He said, I am that I am. Not I was, not I will be. Although He was, and He will be, but He is, I am. Why? He is ever-present. He's unchanging. What God was yesterday, He is today. And what He will be tomorrow, He already is. He never changes. I am that I am. Numbers 23.19 He said to Moses, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent or, or turn. And he has said, has he said it and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God says, if I give my word, I mean it. I say, Pastor Rick speaking, if I gave my word, I'll try to mean it. Do my best to mean it. I'll probably mean it. Whether or not I follow through, we'll, we'll have to see. You know, I love when people say things like, my word is my bond. You're human. Your word is... But when God says, I'm going to do something, you better believe it. Because He is unchanging. He is absolutely faithful and true. His word is absolutely sure because He is absolutely sure. So if He says it, He's going to do it. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Because He's unchanging. This truth is so foundational 
to faith, especially faith through struggles and difficulties, because it's his unchangeable character that gives weight to his unchangeable covenants. His character to his covenants. We can believe what he says because of who he is. Listen to this. He said back in Genesis 22 to Abraham, God speaking to Abraham, he said, By myself I have sworn, or on myself, I swear to you, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Isaac, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, listen to the Hebrew writer's commentary on that promise. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 6.13, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater... He swore by himself. I swear on myself, Abraham, that I'm going to do this. Now that's awesome. The Hebrew writer says in verse 18, chapter 6, so that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, what are those? His character and his covenant. His person and his promise. Who he is and what he says. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. See, that's what Asaph is doing. He's taking off the glasses of despair and putting on the glasses of hope. And I love what the Hebrew writer says here, Hebrews 6.19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And man, we need that anchor. Why? Because the soul is turbulent. The soul is ever-changing. The soul, that, that place of intellect and will and emotion, our soul, it's, it's always like the sea, always changing. My soul needs an anchor that I can cling to, that I can hold fast to, that will not let me go. Man, check out the psalm we're reading. What Ace is talking about here, this is a journey into a soul in turmoil. A man facing a crisis of faith, the dark night of the soul. And as he struggles through this, he comes to that reality, and it's not his soul, it's not his answers, it's not his despair in which he finds peace and comfort. It's the unchangeable nature of God. And he recognizes that, and so he begins to call up the old stories of the past. I love the old hymn. I grew up singing this one. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Savior's love. Micah 7.18, Micah says, He delights in unchanging love. Wow. Our unchangeable God makes unchangeable promises and delights in unchangeable love. And so whether my life is turbulent or not, there's an anchor. There's a rock I can cling to. Asaph stops and he recognizes this and he changes his tune. Crisis now becomes confidence. Verse 16, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and they were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known 
And here's how we know what he's talking about. It's the Red Sea because he says in verse 20, And you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You parted the sea. I love Asaph's description because we get a little bit more. All we know in Exodus is that Moses parted the sea. But Asaph, boy, he paints the picture for us. It's as though he pulls out a large canvas and a paintbrush and begins to paint this awesome, amazing... I mean, it would blow Charlton Heston's version away. You know, arrows flashing, the clouds pouring, the, the skies giving forth thunder and whirlwind and lightning and the earth trembling and shaking. I mean, this whole thing. An amazing moment. And Asaph is drawing off of that man. He is looking back and he's going, my unchanging God rescued my people. Then He will rescue me now. I can trust Him because of who He is and what I know He has already done. I I need to point this out in this wild and wonderful description of the parting of the Red Sea. There are those who, who try to... Uh, to try to propose that the Red Sea was actually the Reed Sea. Have you heard this argument? It's one of the stupidest arguments I've ever heard, but I'll, I'll remind you of it if you haven't heard it or I'll tell you about it. It's that there in the, uh, in the section between Egypt and what would be the Promised Land coming on into Israel, there's an area there called the Reed Sea that's a marshy, kind of a, not really even a sea, but they call it the Reed Sea and it's about a foot deep in water. And there are those who say, see, that was the thing. And some very hot, dry desert winds came through there and kind of blew apart a little path. They went across on that. And they said, a miracle! A miracle! You know? Well, I'll tell you what. There are a couple problems with this argument. Problem number one, if it was the Reed Sea, that would be a miracle because the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in a foot of water. Okay? <laughs> That's amazing to me. Wow! But if you read Asaph's confirming description among other Hebrew passages that draw back, the very depths trembled. It's not a foot of water that Asaph is talking about here. It is deep water that trembled and shook and came apart as God parted the sea and as Moses and Aaron, like shepherds, led the people of Israel through the sea. Read this again, verse 19. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters Watch this. And your footprints may not be known. Well, of course not. Of course not. If you're you're walking through the sea, you're not going to leave footprints. Did Jesus leave footprints when He walked on the water? (laughs) Can you imagine Peter looking for Him? There's no footprints here. We don't know what direction He came from because there are no footprints. I point this out because, gang... Back in verse 13, the psalmist wrote, God's way is in the sanctuary. And here he wrote, your way is in the sea. And your footprints may not be known. His way is in the sanctuary, but His way is also in the sea, that His footprints may not be known. And you might say, well, if His footprints are not known, how can I follow Him? Ah, you've got to stay close. You've got to stay close to the Lord. Father's not looking for people to trail several miles back. He wants you right where He is. He doesn't want you following His footsteps. He wants you with Him. Because His way is in the sanctuary. He wants us to enter into that place of His presence to walk where He is, not to trail after Him. Well, what are you getting at, Rick? You can apply this in so many different ways. I think we trail after Him when we use human religious books rather than Scripture. We're trailing after Him. 
we're looking for footprints. And God says, why don't you just come to me? Why don't you just come to where I am? I think we trail after Him when we rest our faith on the faith of our pastor. Or when we place our faith on the... You know, I, can go, I can go listen to Pastor Rick teach the Bible and, and, and I go, okay, yes, I, that I can believe. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're trailing after God. You go to where God is. You go directly to Father. And you stay close to Him. And you cling to Him. When Jesus walked on the water, He left no footprints, and Peter had to stay close to his Savior or he would have gone right back down. No footprints, just a Savior. He doesn't want us to rest in those footprints, but to rest in Him. And so Jesus says in Matthew 11.28, I know we quote it a lot, Come to Me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's God Himself. It's getting away from the religious notion that we learn a few standard principles and we will be good to go. Get away from that. It's, I just want to be where He is. Come to Him. Recognize He is right there. My confidence is in my unchangeable God and my sanctuary is my Savior. Psalm 77 may well have inspired Psalm 78. Because after having turned the corner of his own dark night, now Asaph begins to realize that he had the old stories to draw from. When it got really bad and he got really depressed and there was no answer, and by the way, that's what you do when there is no answer, you meditate on how he has answered you before. You look back to the things, the ways God has blessed you and seen you through before. Why would I do that? Because He's unchanging. Same God who did that then will get you through now. He may not say anything this time. But He will get you through now just like He got you through then. So you look back. And we even draw further back off of the old stories. Asaph sees this and he realizes, man, I got strength out of that. I started to muse on the ways of the Lord and to think about His deeds and to meditate on what He did and leading. And and suddenly faith rose up. And so he writes Psalm 78. The purpose of Psalm 78 is to instruct Israel corporately that they might pass along this anchor of God's unchangeability to the next generation. Psalm 78 is a masculine of Asaph, an instructional or a doctrinal psalm. It's a great 72-verse history of God's faithful leading of Israel from slavery to sanctuary. Watch this, verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction, or literally, listen, O my people, to Torah. Listen to the Torah. Go back to those five books. Listen again. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of whole old. Literally, I'm going to utter hidden lessons. I'm going to open up things that were happening then, but are a lesson for us today. He said, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the next, to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord, and His strength, and His wondrous works that He has done. He says, for He established a testimony in Jacob. Now, hold on there for a minute. He established a testimony in Jacob. What does that mean? His choice of Israel as a people, as a chosen people, was not some haphazard thing because He happened to kind of like Jacob. 
It wasn't that one day God looked down and goes, Jacob, he's kind of cool. I like him. I'm going to make him my people. No. The whole choice of of this wily, crafty man whose offspring would be a stiff-necked, stubborn people was to express his unchangeable faithfulness. He chose a rather faithless people that his faithfulness would be even more highlighted. And in being in relationship with them, even though they failed time and time again, God remains consistently, unchangeably faithful throughout. Going on in verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob, a witness that people would know more about God. And he appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Two reasons for the writing and the singing of this psalm that he lays out in those two verses. Number one, that the children would be confident in their faithful father. This history of Israel and reviewing it all as he's about to do is so the people would be confident in the faithfulness of their father. And secondly, that the children might not crumble like their faithless fathers. Confident in the father, not crumbling like their fathers. And the two are now going to be contrasted back and forth. This confidence in God or the crumbling of history. And God establishes this testimony in Jacob. Remember, and it's important, God promised to visit every successive generation to see if that generation is faithful. To see if that generation chooses God or is crumbling like their fathers. Exodus 34, verse 7. God said, I keep loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet, I will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquities of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And we've explained this several times. That's an important passage to understand. doesn't mean God is going to visit punishment on the children of the third and fourth generation, but that He is going to visit the children of the third and fourth generation and see if they're faithful to Him or crumbling like their fathers. In other words, every generation has an open chance with God to be faithful to Him or to be faithless like generations gone by. In uh, Genesis 18, we talked about this briefly as as an example on Sunday, that God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's there walking with his angels and he says to the angels with him that, you know, I need to tell Abraham what's going on. Now, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Should I not let Abraham in on what's going on? And my question is, why? Why does he need to let Abraham in on what's going on? Listen to this. Genesis 18:17. The Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay. But still, why? Why tell Abraham that you're about to destroy these two evil cities? God goes on. He says, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. 
What does that mean? It means the Lord wanted Abraham to tell his children. The Lord wanted that story of His grace with Sodom and Gomorrah. His grace? Yeah, the fact that He would save it for ten people. He wanted His grace, but His justice both to be told to the next generation. So He tells Abraham ahead of time, this is what's about to happen. So that Abraham would pass it along to his children. I was thinking about this whole issue of one generation to the next. Passing on our faith to our children. And I am so thankful that my father didn't have a faith that crumbled. That he is faithful to God. He has always been faithful my whole life. And I I am so appreciative of that and thankful for it. He taught me the truth. He told me about the Lord. He armed me and he prepared me for battle. And I didn't realize it until I think I was about 46. Yeah, 46 that I realized. (laughs) Listen, if you have a parent who equipped you and armed you for battle. Praise God. In fact, call them up tonight when you get home and thank them. But listen, if you don't have a parent who passed faith along to you, then tonight when you get home, call up God and thank Him. Because He got you here. He went beyond what a parent may or may not have done. And He seeded faith in you. Your father loved you so much that even when your earthly father or mother didn't quite get it off to you, he did. Either way, we can thank the Lord. But that being said, i got to say one of the most foolish things I have ever heard a parent say, and being in youth ministry for a long time, I've heard it said a lot. I don't want to force my faith on my children. I just want them to choose for themselves. Well, they will probably choose wrong. It is not forcing anything on your children. You know, do do you let your children eat whatever they want? Are children allowed to go to school if they want to? Or if not, that's okay. You want to sit home and watch Spongebob? Cool. I just want you to choose, you know, for yourself. We wouldn't do that. But it comes to faith. And I've heard more parents say, "Ah, I just don't, I don't want to push them. Man, listen, when they're in your house, push them. Get them to church. If they rebel and reject it later, you know what? That is their choice. But you do everything that you can. I know some of you are saying, I did everything I could, but I can't do anything now. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. We have a children's ministry on Sunday mornings that needs teachers. And this is not a commercial. We as a body have a responsibility to the next generation of children to teach them the Word of God. And if you don't have children in your home, how do you respond to God's call that we prepare the next generation? You go on Sunday and you teach. You help a group of kids learn about Jesus. Involve yourself, invest yourself in, in children. You know, we, we pass along what matters the most to us. And this is what Asaph is doing. And I know we have a lot of verses, just we'll be okay. But this is what Asaph is doing. He's saying, this generation of kids matters. Let me tell you something that that I'm involved in that I didn't want to do. And those of you kids who are with me on Fridays, understand, I love you guys. I didn't want, on Fridays at 2 o'clock, Cheryl, did you talk me into it or did I just, I don't know. We have a group of about 10 or 11 kids who show up at my house at 2 o'clock every Friday afternoon. Right now, we're going through the Truth Project. Ages 11 through 16, and they're going through the Truth Project. 
And once we're done with that, we're going to continue just going through the Bible together. And again, kids, I love you. I didn't want to do it. I'm a busy man. I'm a pastor. I have a church to be concerned with. I have a family life. I've got things going on. I don't have an extra hour, you know. So I really resisted, but, but I was convicted. And, and it was stuff like this. It was, you know, Scripture. And what kept coming to mind was the book of Deuteronomy and Moses saying, you've got to pass this on to every successive generation. I've got two kids off at college, and I'm praying for them every day. I've got other kids coming up, and I'm beginning to really recognize finally, and I wish I had known this when I was 20 years old, but I'm beginning to recognize how critical it is for every one of us as believers in Jesus to pass on the truth of the gospel to continue it for the next generation. We pass along what matters to us. And I I realize I'm sitting here for a minute, but but this weekend is pumpkin picking weekend for my family. And every year we go and we put on the Charlie Brown music and we go out to the pumpkin patch, the most sincere that we can find, and we pick our pumpkins and we bring them home and decorate the porch and normally we'll have apple pie that night and watch, watch cartoons or watch movies together and, and we'll make pumpkin bread and, and you know we'll do all kinds of pumpkin related things. And my oldest are in. I mean, Corey is so locked into holiday tradition that he was furious when he heard two weeks ago his grandma was watching A Wonderful Life. How can you do that before Christmas? It's a violation of everything I hold dear. And we pass along these things to our kids that are so important, and I started thinking, pumpkin picking weekend. Now, I like pumpkin picking weekend, but really, is, is that what I want my kids to take out of their childhood? Or is it the Word of God? Is that going to equip them for the storms of life or is it the truth? How are we training up the next generation right now? Church kids are often armed, they're often even equipped, but they're not ready when the trials come. Like Ephraim. Like Ephraim. Read on, verse 9. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law or His Torah. They forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown to them. Asaph, again, before reviewing the history of Israel, he's laying in the importance of this point and he raises the example of Ephraim. It's an historic example and it's a prophetic example about this singular tribe. Historically... Verse 9 indicates some point at which Ephraim was going into battle and, and their spirits quailed and they fled. They retreated. They were armed. They were archers. They had what they needed, but they turned back when the difficult day arrived. And so Judah, we'll see down in verses 66 and 67, Judah gets called up instead. And Judah from that point forward will be the lead tribe. Why? Because Ephraim quit. Because Ephraim, though they had the right armaments, they ran away when it got tough. What good is the equipment if you don't have the confidence? And here's what he's saying. You can hand your kids a Bible, but if you don't introduce them to the author, if you don't teach them how to have confidence in an unchangeable God, what good is a Bible going to do them? Make sure you have a Bible in your home, son. Okay. It'll be up there on the bookshelf, along with all the other books that are never read. 
2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Passing on to the kids. Helping them to know God and to accurately handle His Word. Also, historically, verse 10 points something else out. It says they did not keep the covenant of God, but refused to walk in His Torah. Do you realize the Ark of the Covenant? Gang, when it was first brought into the land, it was kept in a place called Shiloh. Guess where Shiloh was? Ephraim. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tribe, the tribal territory of Ephraim. And what Asaph is saying is, they had the covenant right there in front of their noses, and they didn't keep it. They kept the Ark, but they didn't keep what was inside. They rejected the law of God. And prophetically, what's interesting is Ephraim, who forgot his deeds and his miracles which he has shown them. Ephraim is the name by which northern Israel would be known, the northern kingdom that was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Ultimately, Ephraim would be destroyed. And they would fall some 200 years after Asaph wrote this psalm. Now what follows in the rest of the psalm is a running commentary where Asaph historically contrasts God's faithfulness with Israel's faithlessness. Watch this, verse 12. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and He made the waters stand up like a heap. And then He led them with the cloud by day and all night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness, and He gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock. And He caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet, God's faithfulness, yet Israel's unfaithfulness, watch this, they still continued to sin against Him. To rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. And then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so the waters gushed out and the streams were overflowing. But can He give bread also? Will He provide meat for His people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. And if there's one thing that ticks me off as a parent, it's when my kids don't believe that I'm going to take care of things. When they question, But Dad, are we going to have this on time? But Dad, I need it. But Dad... It's like, look, do you think I'm a moron and I don't know what I'm doing? Don't answer that, kids. (laughs) Trust me. God's saying, I gave you water in the rock. I parted the sea. What, you don't think I can? Okay, I gave you manna. And when that wasn't enough, I gave you so much quail, you had meat coming out your nostrils. Not enough for you? What do you, what do you want? The Lord's angry because they did not believe Him and trust in His salvation. Yet, another yet, now we swing back to God's faithfulness. Yet, He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and He rained down manna upon them to eat and He gave them food from heaven. Note this. In all the time they were rebellious, in all the time they were wicked, in all the time they were stiff-necked and turned against God, even when the snakes were biting the people because they were in rebellion, there was still manna to be gathered. They never went without until the first day they set foot in the fruitful promised land. Man did eat the bread of angels, or literally the bread of the mighty. He sent them food in abundance, verse 25. Verse 26, 
He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by His power He directed the south wind. And when He rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then He let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. I mean, they didn't even have to go hunting for it. They just opened the tent and there's a quail. Dinner! Good to go! And so they ate and were well filled and their desire He gave to them before they had satisfied their desire. While the food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. That's Numbers 11, 33, and 34. Why would God do that? Listen, (laughs) He knew His people. He knew how Israel naturally responded to discipline. He knew they needed a serious swat. It says that he subdued the choice men of Israel, and in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works, and so he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror, and when he killed them, then they sought him. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. They're a hard-hearted people. And it took the extreme to get their attention. And by the way, this is why the tribulation is coming. Number one reason for the tribulation is to wake up the Jewish people. It will go back, God's going to take them back to Old Testament style waking up. And when the ground shakes and the tragedies occur, they will then return to God because that's kind of the way it's always been. When He's kind to them, they're faithless. When He's hard on them and disciplinary and punishing Oh, okay, we're back. We're back, Lord. But, after verse 35, it says, They remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer, but they deceived Him with their mouth and they lied to Him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward Him, nor were they faithful in His covenant. But He, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often... Often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Back and forth. God is faithful and they are faithless. And God is faithful and they are faithless. And God is faithful, they're faithless, so God disciplines them. And they go, okay, we'll be faithful. And then God is faithful and they are faithless. And back and forth it went for 40 years. But I find this amazing. Verse 40 and 41 says, They grieved Him in the desert and they pained the Holy One of Israel. That is absolutely mind-boggling. Man pained God. Man hurt God. Man's actions, man's behavior broke his heart. In Psalm 77, Asaph articulated the cry of the common man, an expression of the heart that we can all relate to. And here in Psalm 78, we get a rare glimpse into the heart of God as He is in pain. God in pain? Yes. God hurting? Yes. God's heart broken? Absolutely. By one thing. What is it that can hurt God? What can grieve Him? What can pain Him? We can. We do. When we rebel. When we reject. It literally hurts God. 
Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our choices, our rebellion, our, our sin, it does impact God. And I think religion has, has painted this picture of God as this cold, unfeeling, you know, very distant, dictatorial power that lives up in the heavens. And what we do down here, He really could care less. He just wants our allegiance and that's about it. No, not true. Your every action that is sinful or wrong, my stupid choices, it pains Him. Why would it pain Him? Because He loves us so very much. Verse 42, when they did not remember His power, or they did not remember His power, the day when He redeemed them from the adversary, which tells us, by the way, that Satan was at work in those 40 years as well, when He performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers to blood and their streams that they could not drink, He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them His burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble and a band of destroying angels. And He leveled a path for His anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life, and He's talking about the Egyptians, to the plague, and smote all the firstborn in Egypt. The first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. But He led forth His own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them to safety so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to this hill country, which his right hand had gained. And he also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. All of this should have been recalled by Ephraim. And it wasn't. And Asaph puts pen to paper to get this out, to get the children singing it, to get the Israelites singing it, and rehearsing this great and grand history. Why? So that every generation would remember what happened and could call up these great stories to strengthen their faith. Yet, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they provoked him with their high places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. And when God heard, he was filled with wrath. Didn't he have a right to be? After all he did for Israel, that they would turn to idolatry and worship false gods? Oh, he was provoked. He greatly abhorred Israel. So that, verse 60, he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. What's that talking about? They took the Ark of the Covenant out of Shiloh into battle against the Philistines. And God said, fine, have it your way. And he pulls his spirit away and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and will never make its way back to Shiloh, back to Ephraim because the people of Ephraim in northern Israel, they didn't believe anymore. They were so rebellious, God said, okay, then I'm removing my presence from you. And He sends it over into Philistine country, the, the enemies there. 
1 Samuel chapter 4 tells the whole story. Verse 62, He also delivered His people to the sword and was filled with wrath at His inheritance. Fire devoured His young men and His virgins had no wedding songs. Why? Because fire devoured the young men. (laughs) His priests fell by the sword. His widows could not weep. And then the Lord awoke as if from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. Let's... uh, Make sure you know that word. The word in the Hebrew there is not overcome. It's literally sobered up from. So like a warrior sobered up from wine, he drove his adversaries backward. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. They lost the ark. He pulled his presence. And rather than Ephraim, he said, you know what? Judah. Judah will be my man. He chose, verse 68, the tribe of Judah and Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has founded forever. So what's that saying? The ark came into the territory of Judah, into Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, and his presence would be there rather than Ephraim. He also, verse 70, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. And so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. A couple things to note real quickly here. To shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. Well, Jacob and Israel are the same guy. Why does he divide the name this way? Well, because his people are Jacob. Like Jacob was before the name change. Wily, hard-hearted, stiff-necked. His people are Jacob, but his inheritance is Israel. That is, Jacob after the name change. Israel, meaning governed by God. There is a day coming when Israel will reside governed by God. And that's his inheritance. Until that day, they're his people. Jacob, heel catcher, the wily ones. But when that day comes, Israel, governed by God. When we read through Asaph's commentary and we see the back and forth contrast, God's faithfulness, Israel's faithlessness, all we can do is say, it's amazing grace. He took them from the slavery of Egypt to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. From Moses to David, from Shiloh to Jerusalem, from Ephraim to Judah... It's the story of the faithful God shepherding faithless Israel and it's your story and mine. It's our story. We look at this and it's a reflection of ourselves having brought out of slavery and into the sanctuary. Having been brought from rebellion and into a relationship. Judah was chosen and from Judah came the line of David. From David came the son of David. Jesus who brings us out of our slavery and into His sanctuary. And John 1.16 tells us, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting, if you look at, back at the end of Psalm 77, you see the people led like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. In other words, Psalm 77 ends with Moses shepherding the flock of Israel. Now Psalm 78 ends with David and consequently the son of David 
as Israel's shepherd. But note this. What happens when the sheep abandon the shepherd? What happens after all God has done for His people? What happens when the sheep say, we're not going to follow you, when they abandon the shepherd? And the answer is simple. The sanctuary is destroyed. Psalm 79. Sanctuary is destroyed. Psalm 79 is another amazing prophecy of the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., 400 years after Asaph would write this psalm, and yet it reads like history. He writes about what is going to happen as though it had happened. And we know this because when Asaph wrote this psalm, this had not happened. This did not happen in the lifetime of Asaph. The first time what he describes happens is 400 years later. He already had prophesied about it once in Psalm 74. We studied that a week or two back. And so here he goes again, prophesying about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Why another prophetic warning about the temple? Because God doesn't play games or trick His people. God doesn't sneak up and go, Ha! Judgment! It's not how He works. Peter says, God is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's why we're 2,000 years down the line here, gang. That's why warning after warning after warning has been shared, has been said. God warns because He loves us so desperately. He has warned in what we talked about hell, we talked about judgment a couple of Sundays in a row. Why would you do that? Because God loves us. And because God doesn't want anybody to fall into that category. And so here He is prophetically saying, the temple is going to be destroyed. The sanctuary will be ruined. You've got to understand, Israel, if you don't turn to Me, this is what's going to happen. Verse 1, O God, the nations have invaded Your inheritance. They have defiled Your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water around about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Can you imagine what Asaph was thinking as he's writing this song? This has never happened. People are going to think I'm nuts. You've given the bodies of your servants for blood flowing in the street. This, This didn't happen when Asaph was writing. But prophetically, God was given a message. Asaph had to write it down. And what Asaph does here, two parts to this psalm. In part one, in these first seven verses, he he presents the consequences of rebellion. The Spirit, through Asaph, presenting the consequences of rebellion. This is what the rebellious nature of Israel is going to finally come to. Can we take a lesson from this? It's been said, experience is the best teacher if you can afford the tuition Paul said it this way 1 Corinthians 10.6 these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things also as they craved these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come so note this note what sin and rebellion lead to the consequences of sin and rebellion 
Verse 1 shows us it defiles the temple. Okay, rebellion defiles the temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. You know what the word immorality is in the Greek? It's pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. Paul is specifically saying flee sexual immorality. And let me just make sure we're all clear on what sexual immorality is. It is any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Bar none. Heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter. If it's outside of the marriage of a man and a woman before God, it is pornea, according to Scripture. It is sexual immorality. Rick, why are you being so clear about that? Because our culture is not clear on it. Because our nation doesn't have any idea what sexual immorality truly is. It gets pushed further and further out into the weird fringe And we have Christians living together. And we have Christians having sexual relationships. And and it's like, yeah, but but at least it's not this. At least it's not that. Hey, if it's pornea, it's pornea. Period. And Paul says, flee pornea. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man, the pornea man, sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Did you know that in our country, in America today, the statistics for sexually transmitted diseases among non-Christians and among Christians are exactly the same. Exactly the same. There's no difference. You would hope, you would think that at least among Christians that there would be a lower number. There's not. Christians have just as many STDs as non-Christians do. And our bodies are supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? We're defiling our bodies. Rebellion brings about, first off, defilement. It's a consequence of rebellion. In verses 2 and 3, we see that rebellion deals a death blow. They've given the dead bodies of your servant for food. The flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. they poured out their blood. Death. It's an outcome of rebellion. Hey, man, 586 B.C. was an absolute horror. It was a bloodbath. And in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem fell again, when the temple was destroyed the second time, Josephus wrote that the bodies of the people were thrown over the walls of Jerusalem in the tens of thousands. Because rebellion leads to death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus I'm Lord. And you might say, but I'm saved, right? See, I'm saved by the free gift of God. Yes, you're saved, but guess what? Sin still kills. What do you mean? I mean in our Christian life, we may be saved, but our sin and our sin choices still kill us. It murders our joy. Sin buries relationships. It suffocates hope. It flatlines our happiness. It's still killing us if we're making sin choices. Rebellion defiles our temple, the body, and it deals a death blow. It, it, it makes us a derision among non-believers. That's what he says in verse 4. We've become a reproach, a scoffing, a derision to those around us. People laughing at Christians saying, you're no different than we are. And they're right. Because there's no difference in behavior. There's no difference in action. 
And when those set against Christ see no difference among those who declare Christ, we become a source of name-calling and we become ineffective in sharing the grace of Christ in the world. Our rebellion does that. But the fourth thing our rebellion does is it, it devours. Verse 7 said they devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Sin, it, it takes over. It desires to rule and run over our lives. I, I heard just this last week, perhaps you've heard about the alcoholic house that we have, our government has down in Seattle. The government of Washington has determined that the best thing to do with the most incapacitated of drunks on the streets of Seattle is they've built this lovely home for them and they bring them into this home and what they do is they allow them to live there and they provide alcohol for them. Your tax dollars, hard at work. 75 drunks live there and this program has been deemed a success. Why? Because they've gone from an average of 14 plus drinks a day to an average of 11 plus drinks a day. Successful. And this is what our world does. And I I heard about that and I thought about these, these men, these women, these people living in this house and they are devoured by their sin. They're consumed by it. They want another shot of vodka and they run out there are people hired at the house who run out and buy the liquor and bring it in for them so they can just continue to drink and live in this encased devoured by their sin sin the consequences gang it leaves us defiled dying derided and devoured but Asaph second half of the psalm here pleads the compassion of sanctification verse 8 do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where's their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Asaph pleads the compassion of sanctification. Last thing I want you to get. So hear this. Verse 9, he makes this comment. He says, forgive our sins. Forgive our sins, Lord. The word forgive there is kafar. Kafar in the Hebrew is that same word. It means atonement. In other words, he's saying, deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. Leviticus 17.11 God said, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement, kafar, for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement, kafar. Last week we shared that the sanctuary there in Israel had two primary functions. It was a place of holiness where God's presence would reside. And it was a place of sacrifice where God's atonement, kafar, was offered. And so Asaph comes along and he first describes the sanctuary. Defiled, destroyed, ruined. And then he pleads for sanctification by God's compassion. Now understand this. For the Jewish person reading the psalm, they get through the first half and they say, the temple's destroyed, the sanctuary's gone, 
and now you're pay, praying for sanctification, it won't happen. There's no sanctification without sacrifice. Israel today is in quite a quandary because they have no temple. And there's no sacrifice. And therefore, because there's no sacrifice, there's no sanctification. How can you have sanctification after the temple has been destroyed? Well, you know the answer. Jesus, our sanctuary, was sacrificed. As the temple was destroyed, sanctification was already in process. It was already there. So that when the temple was gone, all any person had to do was not go to the temple, but go to the Savior. Sanctuary. Our sanctification is in the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. And God had the whole thing planned out. And listen, when we come out of lives of sin, feeling defiled and devoured and dead, when we, when we have people who are deriding us for who we are and where we've come from, where do we go? Where do we go when our temple is destroyed? We go to the sanctuary. We go to Jesus. And just as Asaph prayed, let your compassion come quickly to meet us, so God responded. God's compassion came quickly to meet us in the person of Jesus. So verse 13, We your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. Father, we give thanks to you. As your people, the sheep of your pasture. Father, may we in our thankfulness pass along what we know. May we share. May we give to each successive generation until you come. May we not be silent. But help us, Lord, to stand with the truth in our hands and the Spirit in our hearts not with bodies defiled because we're choosing the ways of the world, but with with bodies sprinkled clean and washed pure by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Make us whole in Your sight and use us for Your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.